we're going to go all over the place this morning. Uh, I've titled the message, uh, Resurrection Answers, and uh, you'll see why as we work through the message here. It is a topical message. I'll get back to uh, my verse-by-verse study next uh, Sunday, but uh, this morning, topical message titled, Resurrection Answers. Lord, again, we thank you for your word. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Thank you for the truth of the resurrection. And uh, as we consider how important it is and, and how it answers the most important questions in life, I pray for your blessing on our time in the word now. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the world has no answers. Uh, in the rejection of God and his word, they really turn to darkness in rejection of the light. And there is no light in the darkness. There is no answers in the darkness. They are like a blind man in a dark room looking for a black cat that isn't there. In other words, they have no clue. You know, the world doesn't know where they came from. They don't know why they're here. They don't know where they're going. It's really quite pitiful. The world's in sad shape in terms of a a meaningless existence. Living in the now for me And that's it. No satisfying answers. This last week I read the testimony of a converted gay atheist. It was was a gay atheist, but now he's a a Christian. And uh, his name is Beckett Cook. And he was a very successful Hollywood person who hobnobbed with the rich and the famous. But he says, quote, after 15 years of living this, in parenthesis, uh, in quotes, uh, fabulous life, after 15 years of living this fabulous life, I had this overwhelming feeling of emptiness. He says, quote, six months later, I was with my best friend at a coffee shop. We noticed that sitting by a table next to us were some young people with their Bibles. We wondered, what's going on? We had never met Christians in L.A., especially with Bibles. Long story short, they invited him to church and he got saved. He now says, quote, I'm still in awe of God's grace. Over the years, I have lost many friends, even my career because of Jesus. But as the Apostle Paul says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Beckett found the answer in Jesus. However, the world rejects God's answer and lives by what I call a a no-Bible philosophy, a no-Bible day, without any any satisfying answers. Uh, On the overhead note, uh, the no-Bible day, unknown author, but it's pretty good, a day of illusions and utter confusions. Upon our delusions, we base our conclusions, how true that is. Well, in contrast to the world, uh, for the Christian, the resurrection of Jesus Christ holds the answers to all of our most basic questions related to time and eternity. The great question in life really is all about life and death. How did we get here? Why are we here? Where are we going? What is life? Why do we die? And what happens after death? Well, the resurrection of Jesus addresses all of these most important questions. 
Among all the religions of the world, Christianity is totally unique. And I want to emphasize that uniqueness with you this morning, really on two scores. Uh, I want to address the Christianity is totally unique in relationship to its message of grace. We, above all things, have a gospel of grace. And, of course, related to that is the resurrection. The truth of the resurrection is totally unique to Christianity. And so I want to consider both of those with you for just a few minutes. I want to talk about grace for a few minutes, but really segue into our major theme this morning of the uniqueness of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Uh, Christianity alone is a faith based on grace. All the other religions of the world, without exception, are really works based in their orientation. Believing that self-effort and works are the means of getting to God or a better state beyond this life. Okay. We're on strike this morning. There we go. Thank you. All religions say, this is the way. Only Jesus says, I am the way. Uh, We know, as we know our Bible, that Christianity is about a person, ultimately. Uh, It's not about a system of works by which we're saved. It's by a person that we are saved. So in contrast to the world's religions, true Christianity says, we're saved by grace through faith apart from any works that we do. Now, I say true Christianity because most of professing Christendom is actually false religion. It's sad, but it's true. Most of professing Christendom ties salvation to sacraments and rituals, thus really holding to a form of work salvation, and thus nullifying what the Bible says about grace. Grace is God reaching down to us in the person of Jesus Christ when we could not reach up to him. Grace is God's favor, his undeserved, unmerited favor. Grace is the cross of Christ and Christ dying for undeserving sinners. We proclaim a gospel of God's grace. And if you were to ask me, what are the most important verses on this? Go all over the place in the New Testament. But two of them are found in Romans chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. Where Paul writes and he says, Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. A justifying faith is a faith that does not depend upon human works at all. Rather, it depends upon Jesus alone. Jesus is everything to us. He's 100% the Savior. It's not like, well, it's what Jesus did and it's what I do. No, it's totally what Jesus did. Saving faith looks to Jesus alone as Savior. It depends on his saving work on the cross alone as payment for sin. And it believes in him as the risen Lord. Now here in Romans 4, Paul uses an illustration from the workplace, contrasting works and grace and contrasting works and faith. Now when he says, uh, talks about wages, wages are earnings. That is, what is due you? 
I mean, when you collect your paycheck, you're receiving what you have earned, right? Yes, right? You've worked for it. It's not given to you as a gift, right? It's not counted as grace, but rather as a debt that is owed to you because you have earned it. You have worked for it. You don't go to the boss at the end of the week and say, please give me the gift that I have earned. Do you? No. Say, where's my paycheck? I've earned it. I've worked for it. It's owed you. Uh, The person working for salvation doesn't yet understand. It's a gift. The person working for salvation doesn't have it. Because they are not really trusting in Jesus. You're either trusting in what you do or you're trusting in what Jesus did. And if you're really trusting in what Jesus did, you're trusting him alone. And it's one or the other. In Romans 4, 5, the word but is a contrast word. Or uh, is in uh, in verse 5 there, but to him. Uh, it's a contrast word. In contrast to the works and wages concept, which is contrary to grace, is the reality that justification is for the ungodly who believe. Notice it says, to him who does not work, and that renounces any possibility of earning righteousness or acquiring it by any personal merit or effort. Notice, but believes on him. The person who does not work but believes on Jesus is the one who is saved. Two things are in view. Number one, does not work. Number two, but believes on him. They go together. To really believe means I'm not working for righteousness. Only him who does not work but truly believes on him is saved. You see, it's not trying, but trusting. And this runs contrary to normal, natural thinking. I mean, we all say, if you're going to get anywhere in life, you've got to do it. But that's not grace. Faith believes on Him. That is, faith has as its object the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't just believe about Him, but rather relies on Him. This denotes a saving faith commitment. It rests upon, it relies upon, it depends upon him. So saving faith is on him and not merely about him. I think a lot of people have an intellectual form of faith. Even the demons believe and tremble intellectually. But they don't have a faith that follows Jesus, that really knows Jesus, that personally appropriates the truth of Jesus. Notice something here, very important. The text says here, Uh, Note that in verse 5. The text says here that God justifies the ungodly. Let that sink in. The saved are not those who have made themselves righteous, which is impossible. But rather it is the ungodly who are justified when they come to believe. This kicks out all the concepts of a work's righteousness. God justifies the ungodly who come to believe. In fact, faith acknowledges, I am wicked, undeserving, guilty, 
godless sinner who cannot save myself. Therefore, saving faith believes on him for righteousness. This is the righteousness that we have on the basis of grace through faith. As Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 8, For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. We'll, we, can't, we won't get to heaven and, and say, hey, hey, you know what I did? <laughs> Look at me here. Uh, I'm here because of me. No, we're all going to be singing his praises forever and ever. And 100%. Trophies of grace. The person who has no faith in his own works, it is this person whose faith is accounted for righteousness. This person isn't working for salvation, but rather as an ungodly sinner believes on Christ to save them. This idea of salvation by grace, that it is totally a gift to the ungodly who believe is totally foreign to all other religions, including much of professing Christendom. And it's completely contrary to natural thinking. Grace is all about the cross and what Jesus did for us. We like to say, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense which is what it is. You know, it's amazing to me that I'm going to heaven. Uh, I don't deserve to go to heaven. I know myself well enough now to know that, you know, there's, there's no way Dwight should be going to heaven. The only way I'm going is because of Jesus. And when I begin to doubt and I question, and I start, I go back to the cross. It's my everything. You say, but, but you've been in ministry for 38 years. Doesn't that count for something? No, it, it doesn't. It doesn't. All our righteousnesses are as filthy rags, the Bible says. All of them, all the right things we do are still soiled. They're counted uh, as unworthy. The other thing totally unique to Christianity, this is a segue point, the, the other thing totally unique to Christianity is the truth of the resurrection. No other religion in the world can boast of its founder coming back to life again. I like this little meme here. Uh, Jesus' tomb is empty. What about these guys? Buddha? Muhammad? Confused? Uh, Confucius? Marx? Freud? Darwin? You, you name them. Jesus' tomb is empty. All other gods are false gods. There is only one true God... And he is, you ready for this? Drum roll, please. He is the living God. And he is a, a God defined by life. In the Bible, certain people were raised by God from the dead. But the bad news is they all had to die again. Because none of them had a glorified body. Jesus was the very first one to be resurrected in a glorified body that would never die again. That's why Christ is called the first fruits of those who have died. 1 Corinthians 15, 20. First fruits indicates that there are, there are more to come. This is the first, but there's more to come. The first fruits, there's more to come. But Christ was the first. 
No one in the world has ever conquered death before or after Christ. Thus, the resurrection of Christ is totally unique. No other religion in the world has anything like this. Not even close. And the thing that makes Christ's resurrection so compelling is that it is both a prophetic as well as a historical reality. That combination is very powerful. It is prophetic in that 1,000 years before it happened, David prophesied it would happen in Psalm 16. Notice what he says about the Holy One. Psalm 16.10, You will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. The Holy One, that is the Messiah, would not see corruption. Before his body could decay, it was resurrected on the third day in fulfillment of the prophecy given 1,000 years in advance. No other religion in the world can claim fulfilled prophecy like this. And not only was the resurrection of Christ a fulfillment of prophecy, it is also a historical reality. I mean, it's not just some nebulous theory concocted by some mystic in a cave somewhere. No, this is historical reality that is unequivocally attested by historians. Historian Arnold Toynbee said, if only they could have found the body of that Jew, meaning Jesus, Christianity crumbles in ruins. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the right, that's right. I mean, if they just could have found the body. Where is the body? Who took the body? Where is the body? Amazing. And they, they knew, he said, you know, third day. I mean, his critics seemed to know better than his disciples who said, we want a, a Roman guard to guard the place so he doesn't get away. I know he's dead, but we still need to guard it. And then he got away. I mean, how's this work? I like this from Richard E. Simmons. He says, it is important to recognize the number of ancient historians who lived during the time of Christ and wrote of him. Listen carefully. Historian Gary Habermas details a total of 39 ancient sources documenting the life of Christ. Some of these were Christian historians, but many of them were not. To put this into perspective, there are only nine ancient sources that mention Tiberius Caesar. Only nine. And that is significant. Because he ruled for 22 years, from A.D. 14 to 37, overlapping the time of Christ. Well, it's historical realities like this that caused C.S. Lewis, who was at one point an atheist, to say this. A young atheist can't be too careful about what he reads and must steadfastly protect his ignorance. <laughs> Yeah, that's so true. I mean, all the evidence is stacked over here. If you're honest, if you really look at the facts. So much so that even an unbeliever like H.G. Wells said, 
I am a historian. This is what he prided himself on. I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. How true that is. I challenge you to find any other religion in the world that is at once both prophetically true and historically true. There is none. The evidence for the truth of Jesus Christ is unparalleled in the history of religion. His entry into time, space, and history climaxed in his death and resurrection. All in fulfillment of prophecy written hundreds of years in advance and affirmed by history. The power in life, the power of life and death is in the hand of the Lord. We read here in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and he brings up. You know, one of my favorite designations for God in the Bible is the living God. Only God has the power of life because he is alone. He alone is the source of life. Throughout the Bible, the one true God is called the living God. Consider Deuteronomy 5, Joshua 3, 1 Samuel 17, 2 Kings 19, Psalm 42, 84. Isaiah 37, Jeremiah 10, Daniel 6, Hosea 1, Matthew 16, 26, John 6, Acts 14, Romans 9, 2 Corinthians 3, 6, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 4, 6, Hebrews chapter 3, 9, 10, 12, and Revelation 7. Just saying. The living God, it's all over the Bible. We serve a risen Savior. We serve a living God. Jeremiah chapter 10, verse 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth will tremble and the nations will not be able to endure his indignation. Flash forward to the New Testament. 1 Timothy chapter 4. For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Who is the living God? He's the Savior. Who is the Savior? He is the living God. When Jesus entered into history, he claimed to be life. You know, that, that's, that is no small claim. I am life. I, I, what? A person you could look into his eyes and say, I am life? That's what Jesus said. Which is to say, I am the living God. I mean, Jesus said things like, I am the bread of life. Which is to say, I am the stuff of life. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, how does one prove this? I mean, I guess anybody could say it, right? Probably find some insane people who would say crazy things, right? How does one prove that they are the essence of life? 
No small challenge. Well, Jesus said the great proof of his claims would be that he would raise himself from the dead. Now, that's pretty, you know, you can easily prove this, right? Especially when you say it's going to happen three days later. I mean, this is clear stuff. You know, you say, well, I wonder if it's true. It seems like something's going funny here. No, no, no. He dies three days later. He says, I'm going to raise myself from the dead. Pretty, pretty easy thing to know whether it's true or false. In John chapter 2, when the Jews demanded a sign, Jesus said, destroy this temple, referring to his body, and in three days, I will raise it up. And uh, again, in Matthew chapter 12, they're always clamoring for more signs, although Jesus did just unbelievable amount of miracles all over the place. They still wanted, they wanted more all the time. And that's the way unbelief is. It always wants a little more. Uh, but... Matthew 12, then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. <laughs> it was an insult. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Really the idea is more signs at this point. And no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So the great sign that would validate all the claims of Christ would be the truth of the resurrection, the sign of life, and the power over the grave. Romans chapter 1, as Paul in his great you know, letter of the book of Romans uh, is spelling out the truth of the gospel, says in Romans 1, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead. So the first question, the first great question, relates to the issue of life itself. What is the source of life? What is the essence of life? Well, the resurrection answers this question. It shows us that life is in a person, as found in Jesus Christ. The resurrection declared him to be the Son of God, meaning the one who is of the very nature and order of God. God of very God. It proves him to be the one who has power over death. It proves him to be the living God. Want to know the answer to life? Look no further than the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He is life. He has the power of life. He is the source of life. The second great question in life is this. On what basis can I be right with this living God? You know, when my mother was dying, she said to me, I'm ready to meet my creator. Well, on what basis? I did not ask her that because I knew. But on what basis? Well, the resurrection answers this. You see, the resurrection forever answers to the efficacy, that is the sufficiency, God's satisfactory acceptance of Christ's sacrifice for sin on the cross. Jesus ne never spoke of his death without also speaking of his resurrection. And he also plainly said why he was going to die. 
Note a couple of references. In Mark 10, 45, even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Matthew 26, 28, just the night before he's to be crucified, instituting what we know as the Lord's Supper, he said, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. It is a historical reality an irrefutable fact that Christ died. But how could it be proven that his death accomplished its stated purpose? The answer is that in the resurrection, God confirmed that he was satisfied with Christ's payment for sin. You see, on the cross, Jesus' last words were, It is finished. Tetelestai. Really a commercial term that meant the debt is paid in full. It is finished. And God's amen to this was the resurrection. The resurrection is living proof that Jesus did not die in vain. It proves that God accepted his cross work as full payment for all sin. John the Baptist, when he introduced Jesus, right at the beginning, said this. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Okay, Jesus is the God-provided sacrifice to take away sin. But how do we know? How do we know it was accepted? Only by the resurrection. That's why Romans 4 says this. Romans chapter 4, a little later in Romans 4 than where we were before. But also for us it shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses, and was raised because, because of our justification. The resurrection was proof that God accepted Christ's payment for sin and could thereby justify us, that is, declare us righteous on the basis of faith. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 that what we call the resurrection chapter. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. But Christ is risen. And his resurrection is proof that he did not die in vain. Indeed, his death has accomplished its purpose of being a satisfactory payment for the sin of the world. Now, this is where that word propitiation comes in. Kind of a word we don't use very often, but it's a very important word in the Bible. It means satisfaction. The idea that God was satisfied with Christ's payment for sin. And we read in 1 John chapter 2, He himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Christ made a satisfactory payment on the cross for the sin of the entire world. The great issue is, are we going to receive him? 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son. Why, why, why did he come? To be the satisfaction. To be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus' death on the cross before God was a satisfactory payment for sin. And the way we know this is by way of the resurrection. Thus, the resurrection forever answers to how we are made right with God 
on the basis of Christ dying for our sins. So to summarize what I have just said, uh, Christ died for our sins. He made the payment, full payment. Christ rose again, proof of payment accepted. Believe. This is how we appropriate it. The gospel has essentially two parts, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ. The death of Christ, apart from the resurrection, is not good news. You see, a dead Savior is no Savior at all. Yes, his death was all important as payment for sin, but his resurrection triumphs over death and proves that the payment was sufficient. Paul uh, summarizes the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15, where he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel. Gospel means good news, which I preach to you, he's, he's reviewing, uh, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you're saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain, if you believe in such a way that it didn't stick, it doesn't continue, that's a vain kind of faith. And there's people that make a little profession, then they move on. That's not a genuine saving faith. He says, you're saved by believing the gospel, unless it was empty, unless it was vain, it wasn't real in your heart. And then he says what it was. Here's the message. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins. According to the scriptures, he was buried and he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures. The resurrection forever affirms that believers are made right with God on the basis of the cross. It forever settles the great sin issues of our past, present, and future. The cross has settled it all, and the resurrection proves it. This is the great answer to the question, how can I know I am right with God? The third great question in life is this. What makes the life of a Christian different? And if you would go by the polls and who professes to be a Christian, you'd say, not much. You see, the people who do polls tell us about 63% of Americans claim to be Christian. Golf clap, please. Very small golf clap. Okay. But when asked secondary questions about how it impacts their life, the number that may be considered legitimate professions of faith drops down somewhere between 9 and 6%. 63%, 9 to 6%. Don't ask secondary questions. Most professing Christians are not real Christians. Many will say, Lord, Lord, you'll say, I never knew you. Most professing Christians have never really been born again. Most professing Christians have never known the truth. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. In salvation, all the relationships of life change. Our, our relationship with God, our relationship with sin, with the devil, with the world, with God's people, all these relationships have become new. We have this scourge that I have called easy believism, which, by the way, I'm going to deal with at great length in my vacation Bible school, which I've just finished the, the, the manuscript on this, 260 pages of it. We're not going to cover the whole thing. Just relax. 
But it is a resource manual uh, that I've called the, the Right Kind of Faith. And, uh, you know, I like Tozer. And Tozer said back in the day, plain horse sense ought to tell us that anything that makes no change in the man who professes it makes no difference to God either. Yeah, that, that's, that's good horse sense. He's right. What makes the life of a Christian different? And it's a, it is a, a really big thing to claim you are a Christian. And here's what it is. You are saying that I have a living faith. And that living faith has resulted in the living Savior now living in me. In the form of his spirit. This is the great test. Is that not what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, 5? Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. And here's the great test. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. Unless you're not real. Here's the great test. Jesus Christ is living in you. This is amazing. I mean, that the living God is living in me and you. It's it's really quite an unbelievable thing. That's not the right word. I shouldn't be using unbelievable there. (laughs) The Bible teaches that in saving faith, we now belong to Christ. And we are now in union with him. The merit of his death is now applied to us. His resurrection life, we now share in. His death was our death. His life is now our life. You see, when we say we have everlasting life, it's like saying, I have the life of Jesus. I have everlasting life. That life lives in me. He lives in me. And that changes everything. Let me ask you, does the risen Lord live in you? You say, I believe, I believe. 63%, I believe, I believe. Put it to the test. Is Jesus a part of your life? Is it just some kind of nod and I just go about my life? If you are a true believer, the answer is yes. He is living in you and that reality has changed your life. Now we still have the flesh and we struggle. And the struggle is even part of the evidence that we really do belong to him. And we do really want his life lived out through us. But yet we struggle and we will not be perfect until we get to glory. But we are in process. This is the stuff of Romans 6 and Colossians 3. The justification of Romans 5 has resulted in the sanctifying process of Romans 6. The death and resurrection of Christ fits together like hand in glove. The death of Christ emphasizes his freeness from the penalty of sin. But the resurrection of Christ emphasizes being empowered now to live free from the power of sin. You see, Christ as the risen Lord has freed us from the power of sin. And Satan, the resurrection power of Christ now empowers us as believers to live free from the power of sin. Great memory verse, Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. His death was my death. It is no longer I who live, 
But Christ lives. Where? In me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, the Christian faith is not only faith in Christ crucified, but also faith in Christ risen and living in me. This answers the question, what makes the life of a Christian different? It is the truth of the risen Christ now living in me. You know what the Bible says, right? We are the temple of the living God. Colossians 1.27 says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. All those who have come to believe in Jesus have a new master. You see, sin is no longer our master. Now, it wants to kind of act like it's got this voice going on over here. Follow me. You know, you're still under me. But really, sin is no longer our master. The devil is no longer our master. We now belong to Christ. Romans chapter 6. But now having been set free from sin. This is our position. We're set free from sin. And having become slaves of God. You have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. That dual combination is a life changing reality. Freed from sin. And enslaved to God. You see Christ as our Savior bought us with His precious blood, we now belong to Him. Our life is not really ours anymore. He he bought us. He's our Savior. He's our Lord. If that is a reality in your life, then the expectation is that it will be demonstrated in a changed life. Romans chapter 6 Likewise, you also reckon yourselves, count it to be so, reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. Because that really is our position. And alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey it it in its lusts. So the flesh is still there. And we have that struggle. But here's what you need to do. Count yourself to be dead to sin, which indeed you are, and alive to God in Christ. Verse 13, and do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Next question. I've got five questions here. I'm I'm through three, so. And then the question is, what is our destiny beyond this life? Isn't, Isn't that a great question? What about after this life? You know, I was talking to Brother Todd. Todd got saved early in my ministry. And we did some papers. I would write in the paper articles and he'd read those articles. And and, and we said, good grief, Todd, look at this. We've been on the scene here all these years. We're not exactly spring chickens anymore. I'm speaking for myself, not Todd here. (laughs) But it goes so fast. What's the destiny beyond this life? Well, for believers in Christ, the resurrection answers in this way. Romans chapter 8. Verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. 
The resurrection life of Christ speaks to our future. You see, we now share in Christ's life spiritually, but we are also going to share in his resurrection life physically. One day, our mortal bodies, you know, these bodies that are currently breaking down, one day our mortal bodies will share in his resurrection glory. We're going to get a resurrection body just like Jesus has. And it's going to be, I just can't imagine what that's going to be like. 1 Corinthians, that resurrection chapter. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. You know, it's breaking down. It decays. And we, and we, and we put it in the grave. It's sown in corruption, but raised in incorruption. The glorified body never decays. It never grows old. No more pain. No more sickness. No more death. It is sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. Raised in power. And he goes on to say, Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we say he's everything to us. We can't even begin to fully appreciate what the glory of our resurrection bodies will be like. As believers, we are right now the children of God. That's our position. We are forgiven. We are righteous in the sight of God on the basis of grace. But there is more to be seen. And John talks about this in 1 John chapter 3. Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. That's who we are. Therefore the world does not know us, because it did not know Him. Beloved, now are we the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. We don't see it yet. All we see is breaking down. People breaking down, right? Uh, you look in the mirror, it's not getting better. I'm speaking for myself again. Uh, it's not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Right now, we're in waiting mode. And what are we waiting for? We're waiting for the sermon to end. No, no just kidding. Uh, we're waiting for Jesus to come. And when he comes, what's going to happen? What's going to happen when he comes? Well, we don't have to wonder. Philippians chapter 3, our citizenship is in heaven. I mean, for believers, that's where our citizenship is. From which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what's he, what are we waiting for him to come and do? Verse 21, who will transform our lowly body. You know, these humble, lowly bodies that are breaking down who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. He's going to do this to your body, in my body. It's going to be a transformation in the resurrection. Glorified bodies. It's going to be this body. By the way, that's why it's so important what you do with this body in this life. And I believe even in death. He's going to transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he is able, he is able. How do you know this? Well, he raised himself from the dead, and the promise is he can do it for you too, which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Thus the resurrection is promise of a glorified body to all those in union with Christ 
we too are going to share in resurrection glory. And then one final question. Then the resurrection serves as a warning and a call for repentance to the world. The resurrection has put the world on notice. It answers the question, what does the future hold for the world? You know what's going to happen to the world? You say, what is going on in the world? I'll tell you what's going on in the world. It's on a collision course with Judgment Day. We read in Acts chapter 17, Truly these times of ignorance got overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. I mean, the world was oblivious to the plan of God and His plan of salvation. But now in Jesus Christ, things have come into sharp focus. And he commands all people to change their mind, to align with his truth, the truth of his son. And here's why. Because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. Just as sure as the resurrection took place, just as sure God is going to judge the world by Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. And he has put the whole world on notice through the resurrection. He didn't stay dead and he won't stay gone. He's coming back. In the book of Acts, you know that it's a a history. Acts is a history book of the first 30 years of the church age after the resurrection. In the book of Acts, it is the resurrection that is constantly affirmed. This changed everything. The resurrection authenticates all the claims of Christ in terms of who he is and indeed proves that he is the living God who has the authority to judge. The resurrection was God's affirmation of Jesus in all of his claims, including the fact that he is the judge of all. So, looking for proof of Christianity? Well, consider the truth of the resurrection. As Paul would say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel? Looking for satisfactory answers to life's most basic questions? Consider the truth of the resurrection. What have have I shared with you this morning? Resurrection answers. Number one, proves Jesus is life and thus God. Number two, confirms Christ's satisfactory payment for sin. Number three, explains the changed lives of Christ's followers. Number four, promises resurrection glory for all believers. And number five, warns of coming judgment for the world. God's answer to the great questions of life is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. And in the end, our eternal destiny all depends on what we do with the truth of Jesus Christ. God has shown us the answer. It's plainly revealed in his word. It's affirmed by history. The Bible says the truth of God is manifest, but people, you know what people do in their depravity? They suppress it. They resist it. But God now holds all people accountable for the truth of his son, whom he raised from the dead. Here's here's God's on record. And here's what God's record is. This is the testimony. In fact, the old King James used the word record here. Uh, This is on the record. This is the testimony that God 
gave us eternal life. And, and, and where do we find it? This life is in His Son. Jesus is life. This life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life. If you have Jesus, you have life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. The life of Jesus was bracketed by two impossibilities. A virgin's womb and an empty tomb. You see, Jesus entered the world through a door marked no entrance. And he left through a door marked no exit. These are God things that only he could do. God specializes in the impossible. Resurrection life is totally a God thing. In the book of Revelation, when John saw the risen, glorified Lord in his glory, he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. Wow. But he laid his hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I I love this. I love this. He's there like a dead man. And Jesus puts his hand on him. Don't be afraid. I think that's how it'll be when I meet Jesus. I mean, in his glory. I think I'm going to be flat on my face. But I think in grace, he'll lift me up. That's what he did for John here. Do, uh, do not be afraid. He laid his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. The beginning and the end. And everything in between revolves around him. I am he who lives. Yeah, I was dead. I was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. Jesus' resurrection proves he is God. Proves he is life. And as a living God, he has revealed himself definitively in the resurrection. As the risen Lord, Jesus has the keys. The keys of the realm of Hades and death. That is his power over the grave. uh, That's death. And over that unseen spirit realm where the spirits go when they are at death depart from this body, uh, that, that realm called Hades. Jesus has the keys over all the realm of death, the grave, physical aspect, and then Hades, the spiritual realm. Checkmate is a word that comes from the Hebrew language that means your king is dead. With the death of Christ, Satan must have, and I'm speculating here a little bit, but he must have momentarily celebrated with, Checkmate! Your king is dead! King of the Jews! He's dead! Checkmate! Perhaps for a moment, he thought he had won. Angels must have watched uh, watched in hushed silence as Jesus died a most horrendous death reserved for common criminals who were not even Roman citizens, it appeared that the darkness had triumphed over the light. The disciples went into hiding. It seemed as though all was lost. But Satan's pronouncement of checkmate was premature. You see, the king had one more move. On the third day, he came back to life again and forever lives, proving that he indeed is the living God and the Savior of all who will believe in him. Have you believed? Do you know Jesus Christ is your Savior who died for all of your sins? 
and rose again the third day as Lord over all. The Bible promises. This is what it promises. This is what it says. In Romans chapter 10, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He alone is the answer to life's ultimate questions. Praise God for our living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's stand and have our closing song.